Okay, so welcome to the first episode of Free Lunch, a podcast where the Salem Center for Policy folks sit down and discuss some issues that have been present in our center in the past few months, but also things that are in your minds and, and, and we're going to sort of argue about. Um, today, I'm joined by Steve Reshin, uh, a postdoc fellow with us. He's currently in Massachusetts, but joining us here in Austin soon. And um, Gregor Salmieri, our philosopher in philosopher in house, and uh, also the director of the program for objectivity in thought and enterprise. And sorry, Greg, I I, I always bundle the, the <laughs> just objectivity program. We should call it objectivity sure. program exactly. And finally, Scott Vargas, um, that directs our program in financial regulation. So, and today, I guess Steve, we're going to talk about two issues, right? So, what's what did you take the first one? So we're going we're gonna to talk about two issues. The first is big tech, and the second is energy, because these have both been salient issues over... <laughs> uh, Scott, you got the energy background. Uh, perfect. Over the, over the past month. So who wants to start with big tech? Well, we had a... Um, there are just a number of issues that have come up here, right? Uh, there's concerns about uh, whether big tech is censoring. We've had a number of events relative to this over the, the course of the year, over Free Speech Week. Um, Tara Smith and I both gave talks under the auspices of the center about free speech. And I was talking about um, why I don't think uh, anything that these companies do is properly understood as censorship or a violation of free speech, but that nonetheless, there are really important and pressing questions about what constitutes a good speech policy and why uh, in running a, a broad-based platform where you expect people to discuss ideas, you want to uh, ensure a wide range of opinions can be expressed. So that's one issue that comes up with big tech. But another that's come up uh, more and more recently um, from a lot of different corners and has been tied in some mind to the censorship issue is, uh, are some of these companies too big or should they be subject to antitrust uh, prosecution? And there was a panel um, with a few people in that uh, business that is uh, some former uh, SEC, uh, sorry, FEC uh, people and people who are lawyers and uh, knowledgeable about that that we had a few weeks ago on is big tech too big and where I take it too big means there, uh, should it be broken up? Um, and so those are two, two connections in which big techs come up. I know I have opinions on both issues. Uh, I'm a opponent of antitrust in general, and so certainly an opponent of it being used here. Um, but I'm interested to hear what other people think. So let me ask you. Let me ask you, Greg. To start from sorry uh, uh, with the with your thoughts on on when you say that not nothing of this of these companies have done on the censorship side. In the first topic that you brought, uh, what, what what's your rationale behind uh, none of it being a problem in your in your view? Well, I don't think any of it's a violation of the right to free speech, whether it's a problem in the sense that we should think it's a, a bad product or a poor business decision or a sign of a deteriorating culture. That's a, a second question. I think that question is more complicated. But I think the right to freedom of speech is the right to be um, free of forcible government interference in your speech and the right to associate with different people on different terms and different economic relationships to speak and the things you want and support the speech you want without supporting the speech you don't. And I think that aspect of it, the aspect of association and making deals around what you want to say and what kind of speech you want to support 
which includes the ability to boycott or demur from or not support speech you don't want to support is really crucial to the right of free speech and to the way free speech functions to help people discover the truth. I mean, it, it's an important decision to say, uh, you know, I don't want to be associated with this. I don't want to uh, be party to this kind of a discussion. Um, I don't want this on my platform. I think that people do that is part of what makes the right to free speech or it's part of the mechanism by which free speech uh, enables us all to discover the truth and, and enables us all to have the best ideas surface. So I think one has to be careful about how one does it, but it's a feature of a free speech regime, not a bug, that there'll be cases where people exclude people and withdraw their sanction. Yeah, generally, I, I, I agree with you. And I think if we were, if we were talking about something that is a, a very free market of exchange of ideas and I have a platform, you have a platform. I don't want some, some type of discussion in my platform. Fine, you know, don't buy my platform. Don't come to my product. Don't use my product. And that, that in, a, in, a, in a sort of like, uh, uh, if we had a very competitive, very free and well working market, that's absolutely true. And I don't know if we're at a point where that is not the reality. And therefore, when Twitter decides to ban such and such from speaking or, you know, former president from participating on it, whether they are violating any any particular right that anybody would have on that platform, given that is a, a company providing a service for free in a particular case, right? Um, what I worry about, and then I'll make a connection to universities, for example. A private university has limits on, for, let's say I'm using private just because it's something that, you know, is outside of the public domain, right? A private university has limits in what it can do to constrain speech of a, of, a, of, a, of a faculty member, for example, of a student on campus and so on. And the reason for that is that, you know, it's, it's not, they're not government. They're not, those speech uh, uh, codes that, that, that are, are disputed in court, oftentimes the universities tend to lose when, they, when that, that comes about, is because there's an interpretation that, that somehow that institution, even though it's not government, has a role as, a, as, as the public square, as a role in, in fomenting the discussion, the exchange of ideas in a way that, one can see some of these companies that are, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, the public square gets redefined. What is the public square? Where is the place where people can exchange ideas? So one could take the view, I think a, a justifiable view that going in and saying, Twitter deciding that Carlos cannot post information about COVID, let's forget about Trump, uh, can be particularly problematic. Can be particularly problematic in the sense that that that, that they are that there's a censorship that is that is being imposed, on, especially if it is imposed from, on us only one set of ideas, right? One direction of ideas. For example, if you are against lockdowns, that was something that has been, I think, a lot more scrutiny on people that have been critical of the public health actions taken in the last year, right? In both Facebook and Twitter, taking those ideas out, I think is very problematic as, a, as a, if those places are the de facto public square that we have right now in our society. So I don't know how to think about that. I don't know what the legality of it. Clearly they're in the, in the as a legal framework, I think they're, they are protected and they've they, they won that, that battle, right? But as should that be the case, that's where I'm, I'm, I, I have some conflict on, in my mind about that. I think it's certainly culturally worrying if you get into a place where the major institutions that are the means by which ideas are shared are um, tilting the table, so to speak, in favor of some views and not others. Um, but then I think that's something to be fought culturally by looking for, by promoting the ideas there and forms where they'll have them. And 
it's hard to tell exactly what's happening with companies like Twitter on these things. So they're 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 stopping the sh- mostly what I've seen them doing is putting up um, little um, blurbs telling you that uh, they fact checked something, and uh, some of that is ham fisted. But you know, a lot of it I actually appreciate because, like, I think um, I still get to see the person's view. Uh, I want to. I I often go. I mean, looking for fact checks on views I find because uh, I you know it's just too good to be true or too bad to be true. Is this? Uh, it just fits my narrative or doesn't too well, and I want to know if it's true. And I I view it as a feature of the service if they're making it easier for me to find that information. But I get and and I don't think the, the services were ever or could ever be purely neutral platforms. Um, they were always such that they were amplifying some kinds of signals and not others. And you know, either by how many people in my friend group like it, or there's always some algorithm that's determining which ones are amplified. It's not as though it's like a bulletin board in the town square and I see whatever the last guy walked by posted on it. Um, so I think it's just part of the service that they're providing that they're trying to find a better way to put me in touch with the set of information I want. And if that set of information includes fact checks, as it often does for me, I view it as a feature. But the, in cases where I think they're trying not to let me find out about something. Uh, when I ever hear about something like that, that I'm, I'm really concerned about. I mean, I think that would be really bad, but the cases I've looked into like that, um, I found less concerning when I've looked into them than I was at first. And I might be missing some of them though. So I, I think there are two big issues. The, the first is the ubiquity. And it would be less Probably, if, if you're going to ban someone from what is, you know, de facto, like how we communicate now, I think that's that would be less problematic if there were alternative, if there were viable alternatives. Now, this this doesn't mean that we shouldn't that there isn't information that you know companies shouldn't say. Look, you know, we don't want out there. For instance, you know, no one no one should be out there promoting like horrific human rights abuses. I, th- I think I think we'd all be in favor of saying like. You know, the uh, the Burmese government, for instance, shouldn't be able to promote views that uh, demonize the Rohingya. I, I think that would be a, you know, a reasonable, uh, and I think Facebook, Facebook did get into some trouble with this, but um, yeah, but I, I do believe that, so that these platforms even though even though they are an effective public square, it should be able to you know ban some you know really pernicious views. And then the the, the other issue is, with the public square is that this isn't you know nightly news in the 19 you know 50s, 60s, 70s. It's everyone gets their own particular version of the public square. So when I you know when I log into Twitter, I'm I'm going to get a different informational environment than you are. And I think this is sort of the, pro- this is the problem I have with public square analogy. It's that, you know, the information I'm getting is not necessarily the information you're getting. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how to think about that. Cause on the one hand, it's great. Like I get to, I get to find out about, you know, the things I care about, but on the other hand, that could lead to me getting a whole bunch of information that's just factually incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, also, what is a public square? I mean, uh, so we have this analogy to the public square. Are we talking about like Speaker's Corner in the park in London? Or I mean, on my view, I mean, I'm a, you know, a radical, I don't think there should be public property. 
So I don't think there should be a little square owned by the government that everybody should stand on and talk about. So for me, it's a metaphor, what things are part of the public discourse happening. And then of course, as Steve says, and even if there was a square in the park, we're not all gonna be there on the same day. So we're all hearing different, different things. And uh, as a result of the speakers we interact with, the places that we go, but when you say like they should be able to ban this and they shouldn't be able to, ban, or, or rather um, the certain government shouldn't be able to spread certain information, what's this be able to? I mean, are you saying that uh, you think it would be a good decision on the part of Facebook or Twitter or whatever not to carry that content? Are you saying that the governments of some other nations should uh, clamp down on it or force Twitter not to carry it? Or what's the, what's the who's making things able or unable here? This is this is a this is a difficult question, right? So I, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking of a you know situation that we we all agree is you know bad. <laughs> like you know we wouldn't want someone advocating you know genocide on a platform. We we wouldn't want those views to spread. So you know we we can all say you know genocide is is, is really bad and no no one should be able to promote it. But then, the, you know, the, although, the question, although, although views like that are protected under First Amendment in the U.S., right? You can be part of the Nazi Party if you want and go outside and and you know wear your swastika yeah. and you know advocate for that. That's a legal thing to do here, right? Yes, but that 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 means the government can't take action against right. you. Twitter, Twitter can, Twitter yes, can, yes, and. You know, when I say we all like, I, I, I would think that a majority, you know, majority of people wouldn't want to log on to Twitter and see, you know, this, you know, group A is really bad and we should eliminate them. I think that A, a you know, that's, I think, moral, you know, morally wrong and B, that's terrible for business. But mostly, you know, I think A is the far more important yeah. factor. I'm a little mixed on that yeah. because I, I don't want to, I, I want it to be the case that those kind of ideas aren't being advocated in my society. I want those ideas to die. I don't want people to be supporting them. On the other hand, if the guy down the street is advocating that kind of stuff, I'm not sure if I prefer to see it or not. I mean, I want to know, I, I, it's offensive when I see it. I don't want to look at it. On the other hand, you know, if someone's advocating genocide, I, I think better off that I know know that and want to, you know, get away from that guy and say, you know, uh, then that it happened in, in quiet. So I don't know whether I prefer that Twitter, you know, hit me to the fact that he's doing this or, or keep it out of my feed. Greg, I've got a question for you. And I, I, I think I heard you say something and I'll put it in my own words. You correct me if I, if I say it wrong, but I thought you were advocating for free speech being the right of private entities to restrict free speech? Um, I wouldn't phrase it that way because I don't think, I think the freedom of free speech is the right to, you know, speak on your own property to your own audience on your own platform and to contract with people to create platforms, audiences, uh, et cetera. So if, you know, you don't want to repeat what I say, I don't think you're violating my free speech. And if you or constraining my free speech, I think you're exercising yours. And if you own Twitter and uh, you won't promote my posts or whatever, I think that's not you constraining my free speech. It's just coming to terms about how we're going to exercise our respective rights to free speech. So, that, okay, so that, thanks for that clarification. This really helps. And when I think through this as an economist, I look at you know, big companies, these big tech companies, 
as having monopolistic properties. Now, I'm also a bit of a hypocrite in that I think markets solve problems better than governments solve problems. And look at Microsoft and Apple back in the day fighting over browsers and fighting over operating systems. They, they both fared pretty well. I don't think there needed to be antitrust action there. Um, but here, uh, it's a little bit different because big tech really has, in many ways, a monopoly on the speech platforms. And in many ways, they look like state actors. They look like the old broadcasters of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And you know, look no further than when you know, former President Trump was banned. I mean, it was so quiet for a large part of the population that it had a material impact, I believe. And so, it's, it, so I think it's, it's more than just, well, it's my private property and um, I don't wanna hear it anymore. And I don't think that big tech did themselves any favor with the bans, because if anything, it just demonstrated that they do have monopoly-like power over free speech. But, but, they, but they were in this, and, and I think that highlights, Scott, another thing that I think you're right about is that they are too, co too close to government in some ways, right? That one reason I think I think is undeniable that the censorship that took place was primarily in one side of the aisle versus the other. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they responded to pressure from one side of the aisle more. You know, they know who's coming to power. They know who they need to be more close to right now. And therefore it's less costly for them, right? Especially given that they know they might be in a position of too large and about to be more regulated and so on. That it puts me in an uncomfortable position. They are too big. There are a lot of regulatory things that, that are going to come their way. And they're just trying to sort of buy favors from the pressure the government is putting on them as well. And that's, that's, that's disturbing. I, I, again, I, I think theoretically, I would agree with you when you say that markets are supposed to would solve those things. And I think that's the view that Greg has, that, you know, those things will sort itself of self out. Stop, don't interfere. Somebody can create something for those ideas to be, if they are popular and they are in demand, they're going to be, there's a value in the, in the market to, 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 to create them. And we saw that with Parler, that yes, there was demand for Parler. People want to go into Parler and hear whatever it is that Parler has allowed them to, to hear in Parler. But then you get the people who run the pipe saying, no, you cannot have it, which is like another layer of like, wait a second, that's not we constraining speech or, or, and there's really no way to go around that. It's really difficult for them to go around that, right? Well, uh, they're back up now on another well, site. Yes, <laughs> it took a while, right? It's a, and, and, you know. and they could have planned better for it. I mean, I think I'm skeptical that Parler had a coherent strategy here, but it's not, so a few thoughts on this monopoly. First of all, there's Amazon, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Then there's also TikTok. I've just learned in the last few days that there are these political stars on TikTok and apparently also some evangelical preacher who was on our campus uh, yesterday and gathered these huge crowds because everyone knows her from TikTok and I think they wanted to make fun of her. But anyway, uh, so there's these other platforms uh, we don't know about now, Clubhouse and so forth. Um, so I don't think it's true that, I mean, it is true that they have a huge impact on our lives, but I think there are more of them than we know about. Um, they're changing faster than we might think. And um, if you think about, is it like the old uh, media networks, you know, back in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Well, there are a couple of really big companies in that sense, it's similar. But if you think of the range and diversity of viewpoints that we have available to us now, 
it's way greater than it was in the 60s, 70s, 50s. I mean, they, they finally let Milton Friedman on PBS and it made a big difference. But, um, you know, if you look at, people have this idea that Walter Cronkite and the newscasters then were balanced. They weren't balanced. It's just people didn't know of the views that were outside of the narrow band that was on the networks. So it seemed balanced to them. Um, now we have a, just a ton of views available to us. And it might be that the market response now is that there's, too much fringy stuff. And what the market is doing is correcting for some of that. More people don't want some of that fringy stuff than do. And that's the market operating. Now, I do think with Trump, there's a, a real worry here about it's very strange for a major company not to be willing to deal with somebody who was voted for by about half the population, right? There's a, a weird cultural problem when your country is in a state that it's not some, you know, like, um, anti-Semitic shooter on Gab that nobody wants to deal with, but major companies are unwilling to deal with somebody who's supported by, uh, by that much of the population. But that's, I don't think a problem with those companies. I think it's a cultural problem that we're in, that we're like really polarized now. And the very fact that there are so many people who do support that president means that there's a lot of economic energy. There's a lot of possibility for alternative platforms to come up. And I'm not at all worried that Trump's not going to be able to get his word out. Maybe, you know, things got unnaturally quiet for a few days or a few weeks. Uh, but if he's uh, energetic about getting his word out for good or ill, I... Uh, there's plenty of opportunity and plenty of capital available to make it happen. So, so you mentioned capital. Let me ask a question to Scott, I think, which is a, is a good analogy to what we're talking about here. One of the things that happened um, that I was particularly disturbed by and was, the, was uh, I think it was Stripe, which processed a lot of payments through the internet, said that they would not process payments for political donations, I think, to Trump Pacts, Pacts okay? So, Donating money to a campaign is equated to speech in our law, in our system of laws. Okay, so me, my, my ability to give money to a candidate is my is, is essentially my ability to 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 uh, to speak. Right, one way I can speak. Um, so again, a bank, forget about being striped. Just imagine it's a bank. A bank say, no, I'm not going to process a payment for this thing that has a, a, a this transfer that 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 you want to make because I don't like those ideas. Is that a how do we, um, is that okay? Is, can banks segregate on, on, on who to send money from one direction to the other based on their just judgment of whether that's a, a, a undesirable view or, or? I think this is analog to just risk, you know, kicking somebody off the platform. I think it's the exact analog. It's the same as Amazon um, not facilitating the infrastructure for Parler. Uh, but I, I differ with Greg here in that I actually do believe that there are public goods and money transfer and money payment systems like SWIFT and other competing systems are incredibly important. And when those get hijacked and, and undermine stuff like free speech, that is problematic. And I think it becomes more sensitive here because it does touch the money system um, more so than you know, Twitter turning off you know, somebody's handle. Right, so you, you could get in a situation where, forget about Trump or a bad view. Imagine somebody has a really good view. We have a, finally a, a candidate that's a libertarian that has some support in the population. But then, you know, the folks that run the bank said, no, 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 no. We're not going to let you get any money, any donations, even though you have popular support, but we don't like your views. That would be really bad, right? 
uh, even would you think they have the right to say, yeah, no, that's okay. That's their, it's their platform. They're the ones managing the, the transmission of money. And yeah, go figure out a way to, tra to, to transfer the money. <laughs> Another source, you know, um, it's tough, right? Well, ultimately, there are going to be some standards for these things. And either the standards are going to be that whatever platforms are available, whether it's for transferring ideas or transferring money, right, uh, decide to take a standpoint of neutrality on them, or they're going to not, in which case, um, either people are going to be closed out of being able to do this, or they're going to have to develop alternative networks. Uh, and there are alternative networks for transferring money. It's just smaller and a lot more inconvenient and, and a lot worse, right? Um, but as a society, I think, yeah, I would like to see these things be either more neutral in what the central ones promote or more decentralized. There are lots of different companies and we can try to support that, I think, by who we patronize insofar as we can and what views we support. But if we have the government control what the standards are, that's the ultimate centralization that doesn't allow for dissenting views and dissenting opinions as to what, what views ought to be permissible and what shouldn't, or what standards should be used to decide uh, who is and who isn't allowed to transfer things. And this isn't merely theoretical if we imagine some good view, because this is the app that, that then can't get its word across because of bad policies. This was the case for abolitionism, right? Abolitionism was a radical, of slavery, you know, was a radical viewpoint at its time. Uh, abolitionist literature was not allowed to be put through the post office at various times, likewise for pro-contraceptive literature. And we could say, you know, now, yeah, we wish the post office would carry everything and it does and, and bully for the post office, but uh, and bully for FedEx and other companies that do it. But if it's in the hands of private companies and the main ones make what we think are the wrong decisions on this, it's possible, however difficult to circumvent them and possible without going outside the law but when it's the government that controls it, I don't think it's possible to go outside. And we there's have a little bit difference. There's some difference here because in the examples you gave, the government is restricting the free speech mm -hmm. here. It's large private enterprise restricting it. So you don't think the government has any role whatsoever in keeping very large private institutions from res restricting that free speech. So what I think is the same is whether it's government or the private individuals that are setting the policies. And I think what the government needs to do is free us to set our own policies. And one way we might do that is through having large companies that do it. So I don't think the issue is restricting, uh, being more or less permissive about what speech can, can be supported or travel over which media. I think it's the fundamental issue is, is that decision made politically by government actors or is it made economically by voluntary transactions among uh, people creating companies and dealing with companies large and small. I, and I, I view it more on, as adhering to First Amendment rights and pointing to the Constitution, which I hope we all can agree to, and whether it's private or government, uh, taking actions that support it. And, uh, and on, the First on, Amendment's about what the, on, like, you can't violate the First Amendment, right? Even if you want to, it's not about what you can do. And that's true if you're Amazon or Walmart, the same. No, but, but that's what makes the point interesting, right? Because I am absolutely free to violate the free, the, the, the First Amendment in my private store, right? In my store, if you walk into my store, you're not allowed to say what you want. That's, that's, that's absolutely true, 
right? Is that is that a violation of the First Amendment? I so think it's, it's, in the sense it's not that not even free to violate it. No, no, you're not exactly. You're not protected. The, the, the First Amendment does not apply to a private to a job. So people say that a lot of times, like, oh, I was fired for my job for giving my opinions, like. You don't, uh, you don't have that right to, to, for your opinion in your job. That's not, we here at the university, we have this added protection. We are, courts have decided to extend the First Amendment to us, essentially, right? Again, that was not necessarily the case at first, but courts decided on that, that we are protected by the First Amendment uh, because of the nature of our job, right? And I think that's the discussion we're having is that I don't think we all would agree, would agree that, that, you know, if you work at a McDonald's, you do not have the First Amendment rights associated with you. Um, but then we're talking about companies that operate in a space that has this sort of public good associated with it, whether it's transfer of money, whether it's trust and information, and maybe they're too big and they're monopolistic in some ways, which then uh, one can make a reasonable argument that the First Amendment protections applies to that space as well. And, and there's a difference where, between being an employee and not being able to exert your First Amendment rights and a business model that's built up about being an intermediary of communicating your views, right? So that's their business model. Right. In, speak, in speaking of public goods, uh, I, I, we, we can obviously keep talking about this, but uh, I, I wanted to make sure that we got in the our discussion on um, the, ener the energy crisis in Texas. So if you-, you the trend, Could I just notice a difference in how we're thinking about this? Because- Yeah. Um, Carlos and, and Scott, you're both thinking about it. Where does the First Amendment apply? Or where do First Amendment protections apply? And they apply in this case, but not that case, or to this person, but not to that person. You, um, I think of it somewhat differently. I think that First Amendment protections apply everywhere. I mean, everywhere within the country. But the question is, what do, the, what do they imply for this case? So like, I think the McDonald's worker and the McDonald's both have full First Amendment protection. But what that protection is against is the government specifying what can be said and what deals can be made about what can be said. And so when the McDonald's fires somebody for cursing out a customer or whatever he might do that would be against, uh, one might think of as against his First Amendment rights. I think of that as an exercise of the First Amendment, uh, that, that, that the McDonald's has the freedom to set that policy, that he has the freedom to contract for a job, you know, under those terms, terms that, you know, where he gives up, um, uh, he, he agrees to say certain things and not others in this context. All of that I see is what's made possible with the First Amendment. So there are two well, ways of I, thinking I about separate. the amendment's role here. So, I would separate that because we explicitly have in the constitution freedom of contract, which is which is separate from 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 the, the way, the way what the First Amendment would have says, which is explicit about that the government shall not, right? Right. Uh, your your ability to to communicate ideas uh, and religious ideas and so on. It's so, contracting over speech, though, right? Like when we agree, um, we it's because we each have freedom of speech and then have freedom of contract that we can get into we can contract to speak about various things and not about other things. And but, but um, I think what makes a difference here in this context is that these enterprises uh, have lended themselves to give voices to facilitate this, and we've come to expect it. And whether or not we should have expected it, we did. And now when they took it away, it turned everything upside down. And now we're having this discussion. So there's a question of whether reliance interests or uh, something having become a necessity of life or perceived as a necessity of life changes that. Right. Which brings us to energy, I think, really. Right, right, right. Exactly. exactly. That was a beautiful transition. 
<laughs> Thanks for All keeping right, so us on task. Energy, we we want to we want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, a few things that we uh, got to discuss since the energy crisis. Well, let's talk about what the crisis was. Right, we had this blackout in Texas for a number of days due to uh, a once in a century winter storm that you know created temperatures super cold temperatures across the state of Texas and our infrastructure wasn't prepared for that in a way that not enough generation was able to be there at a time where there's a lot of demand for power. Uh, and, you know, we got to, the, to this big loss of, of loss of property, loss of life associated with this blackout that lasted many days across, uh, across the state. In some places, even up to a week. Um, so we had a few discussions. Uh, one of them were, were, were having some people that work on the regulator side and understand those markets, the energy markets in Texas in particular, uh, but also all the way to folks that just think more, um, more generically about the energy business and thinking about the, way, the ways in which we've been treating energy in the past, in the past few years um, uh, with, with the focus on renewal, renewables as a way to, to, to deal with, with the, 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 the vast amounts of, of carbon dioxide being emitted in the atmosphere, so on and so forth. Anyway, so I, I learned a bunch of, from, from those discussions. I think I encourage anybody to watch some of those discussions that we have in our YouTube channel. Um, but I'll start, I'll start by just pointing out one thing that to me was, was very salient throughout the discussion is that as soon as you have a crisis, there's this notion that there's somebody to be blamed, that there's a problem to be fixed. And, and uh, as somebody that studies decision-making and studies uncertainty, um, there's absolutely ex ante, perhaps we did everything right. And then something real bad happened because, you know, it was a, either a very small probability event, something that we wouldn't necessarily want to insure against. And it's totally fine, right? You know, bad things happen and we're not going to insure ourselves against everything. So that's the, where I started thinking about this problem. Is, it, is that a problem here? Or we just saw something that is really dramatically outside of the bounds of what we can expect and therefore Nothing can be done about it. That's, that's what it is. We're all going to pay a price for that really low probability event. Or is there something that ex ante we could have seen that and it had to be done, had to be done differently? So I don't know. I don't know where I fall on that yet, but that's, that's, that's the one thing that I'm still thinking about. What it is, do we need to do anything or, 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 or our system is actually pretty decent as it is and just move forward and, and, and not worry about it? So I think that the, that the events that the center put on really helped educate me in terms of arriving at the conclusion that this was an extreme event and there are probably things that could be done to make the less the next event of this nature less problematic but it was more of an extreme event than it was any particular policy or system uh, that was in place it was a learning event it was in fact the most extreme weather event we've had in probably 100 years here so why should you be surprised that something happened out of the ordinary. And it speaks a lot economically to how much insurance do you want to have to protect against bad events? If you want low cost energy and you don't wanna pay for insurance, then you better be prepared uh, to deal with the consequences of something like this. And that calculus may end up changing. But there are two things that I, I found particularly interesting about this. And one is to your point, Carlos, the immediate and extreme pressure put on the commissioners and the ERCOT for what they did wrong before any investigation was done and all of the resignations of the people who knew the situation best, right? right? So basically you purged anybody who knew how things worked and then you have nobody left at the top. And the irony is that the only people left are the legislators 
who are complaining. Yeah, they don't know anything about it. <laughs> they don't know anything about it, right. So uh, I, I think that is the knee-jerk reaction that often happens, particularly in government when there's a problem and you want somebody's head to roll. And I don't think that was particularly thoughtful. And I feel for all the board members, I don't think any, any one of them are evil or bad people. In fact, Peter Crampton is a world-renowned economist who was at the University of Maryland. And he's the guy, when I was at the SEC, we frequently consulted on how to how to deal with equity market structure issues, right? And there's like two people or three people in the world that can do what he does. And now we want him off the board because he doesn't live in Texas because he doesn't have skin in the game. And like, that's just kind of, you know, an outcome that, you know, is, is not thoughtful. Uh, the other thing that I, I find really interesting about this episode is that people are criticizing that it was uh, uh, the market in terms of not working here, that we shouldn't have a market function. In fact, I think based on what I've learned so far is that the failure was actually a human failure, not a market failure. You had three commissioners decide that there was no power coming and they flipped the switch saying, we're gonna make it $9,000 per kilo megawatt hour. 